Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Well, thank you. That makes me feel good. Um, yeah, we're uh, week two of talking about fasting. Uh, if you are new to covenant, um, maybe you're, you're new to Christianity or the faith, maybe you're exploring God, you might be like, man, fasting? Like, what, what is that? Like, what, you know, why would people do that? What's the significance of that? Well, that's what we're kind of pressing into over the next three weeks. We did last week, this week, and then the following week. Uh, yeah, our culture is familiar with intermittent fasting, right? Like there's like these health benefits of abstaining from eating for a period of time. Um, but there's more than that. When we look at the scriptures, when we look at the way that ancient people practice the faith, there is a goldmine potentially of the benefits of fasting, abstaining from eating. And that's kind of what we're looking at. How does fasting drive us towards God? How does fasting drive us into the spiritual life that we're like called to do? And so that's kind of where we started last week. If you missed last week, I encourage you to go back online, listen to that, and then we'll pick up here this morning. Let's, uh, let's kind of set the, let's set the parameters. We're never last week, but let me just kind of, again, if this is a, you're just jumping in, let me kind of set the scene here. Fasting is not eating, okay? Fasting is not eating. Um, when we talk about fasting in the scriptures, whenever you read about fasting, it's not like abstinence, okay? So like abstaining from like watching TV or being on Netflix or abstaining from sweets or something like that. Like it is abstaining from eating and sometimes eating and drinking. Um, and abstinence is good. Uh, it's good to abstain from some of these things for a period of time and learn self-discipline and stuff. But fasting is actually not eating for a period of time. So when, we, when I use the word fasting, like that's what we're talking about, abstaining from eating food. Um, here's a simple definition. Fasting is a naturally physical response to sacred longing. All right, fasting is a naturally physical response to sacred longing. Let me briefly just kind of break this down for you naturally physical. There are times in our life where we don't eat. We either choose not to eat or we don't want to eat because of the circumstances that are surrounding us. Last week, we kind of looked at like, hey, if you're hyper-focused on something, sometimes you choose not to eat because you're like, man, I don't want to be distracted. I'm trying to accomplish something. Or sometimes you're so focused on something, you just completely forget to eat or forget that you even have hunger or that you even need to eat because you're so engrossed in a thing. And spiritually speaking, there's times that that's appropriate for us. And so it's naturally physical. It's responsive to sacred longings. Uh, I said this last week, but um, when you play volleyball, uh, you, you, you know, if you're on the one side of the net, you don't know exactly where to stand until the ball is hit and it's coming towards you. You're responding to the ball, right? You see where the ball is and then you adjust your position to get in, in place in order to return the ball or pass it over to a teammate, right? So it is responding to circumstances, life circumstances, emotions, things like that and particularly into sacred longings, that the desires that we have, the needs that we have, the wants that we have, these are human, but they're also God-given. And they're meant to drive us to God that we might receive from him what he has for us. And so last week, again, we talked about this longing of, of the need to turn away from a life that is opposed to God to turning towards the life that God has for us. And this morning, we're going to look at a different sacred longing. But to set the stage, I don't want to do that. I'd rather have Michael Scott do that for us. Go ahead and hit it. Michael. 
difficult? Yes. I'm sorry. No, Carol, you walk out that door and it is over. I know. What are you doing? We are getting rid of everything that reminds you of Carol. Hey, what's the haps? Carol? Oh, look at this. Your old condo closing papers. Oh, it's riddled with Carol's name. I wish I could throw this in the box. Why don't you just buy the whole song? I don't have to buy it. I just want to taste it. I just want, I just want a little taste of it. Well, look at this. She saved you $2,000 because they failed to report a mold problem. But wouldn't that affect the final... How did she... Oh. Oh, I see what she did. That is good. Wow. Yeah, Carol, one smart cookie. Come on, my lover. Goodbye, my friend. <laughs> we're all very unempathetic people. Let's just say that. Michael's got heartbreak, and we're laughing at his heartbreak. We're laughing because it's painfully real. We've been there, right? Particularly over love, you know? We can be love-struck, and we can also be love-sick. Uh, when we feel like that relationship is on the rocks, when we feel like that person is being torn from us, we go into a pit of despair. We're grieving. We're longing for something, right? We're having to deal with those deep emotions that we're not used to, and we're trying to figure out how do we move beyond that, right? And, and for a period of time, we don't want to move beyond it. For a period of time, we want to sit in it. We want to be with our emotions because it's the most real thing that we're experiencing in this time. And sometimes we have not helpful friends who are helping us move forward way too quickly. Now, I did some Googling, sort of like a team people sort of thing. So I was sort of like, hey, what's up with this? Like when there's, when there's breakups, why is it that we choose like not to eat? Why is it that we lose our appetite? So I just got this from the internet, so take for what it is. But Marina Peterson, who's a relationship consultant and life guru, um, the body can only ever be in two states, she says, either in a state of repair or a state of response. Interesting. If heartbreak is affecting you negatively, then your body will be in a state of repair. If it's constantly in a state of repair, your appetite will be affected as your body will be working overtime. So Marina says, hey, when we grieve, when we have heartache, when we have these negative emotions, we are working overtime that might suppress our appetite. Again, this, we know this, right? We, we know when we're sad, when we're sad, deeply sad, we don't want to eat. We lose, our, we lose our appetite. So what does that have to do with the sacredness of God, and how does it that how is it that our grief might uh, lead us into a sacred moment of experiencing the presence of God? And so, what we're going to do is we're going to look at three different examples. We got lots of stories this morning. Three different stories in the scriptures of uh, of grief, of sadness, of broken hearts, chaos, and how it is that people responded in fasting. 
And here's the deal. There's not a direct line. The Bible doesn't say, hey, broken heart, now go fast. What we're going to observe is that people fasted in response to these moments. So the first moment, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Um, here's the setup. Saul is king. And it was prophesied that this young upstart David was going to be king after Saul. Here's the deal. David isn't Saul's son. And so Saul is jealous for his own kingship, for his own throne, for himself, and not just himself, but his son and his son's sons. Now, what gets interesting is that uh, Saul's son, Jonathan, is like best good buddies with David. I mean, they're like super tight, all right, like kindred spirits. And so David comes to Jonathan and is like, dude, your dad's trying to kill me. And Jonathan's like, well, man, I don't think my dad's trying to kill you. Like, that's crazy talk. And uh, David's like, no, no, no. Like, he's actually trying to murder me. Like, I'm telling you the truth. And Jonathan's like, that, that can't be. I'm like my dad's, like, closest confidant. Like, if my dad had these intentions, he would surely share them with me. And David's like, hey, I'm going to stay here in this field. <laughs> I'm going to stay here in this field. You go find out, and then you let me know if my life's in danger. And so Jonathan's like, I'll go find out for you. All right, so Jonathan's going to go to the dinner table with his uh, father Saul. Here's where the story picks up. So David hid himself in a field. Again, an interesting place to be hiding. And uh, when the new moon came, the king sat down in, uh, uh, to eat food. The king sat down on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner, who's his general, sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something's happened to him. He must not be clean. Like that's it. He must not be clean. He can't come to, to dinner tonight. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. So totally legit, right? It's a lie, but totally legit. David went to go see some family, okay? Then David's anger was kindled, or sorry, Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's Nakedness, that's pretty intense. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled a spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Uh, the Bible doesn't skirt around messy situations. I mean, have you been there before? Deeply embarrassed by somebody? Stabbed in the back by your own family or best friend? Have you been rudely insulted before? Has someone ever misunderstood your intentions? Has someone tried to actually 
physically harm you with malice intent? I mean, Jonathan just had all of that come at him from his own father in a moment. I'm coming to dinner, and now all of a sudden, like, I'm assaulted in every direction. So what did Jonathan do? Well, I don't think he was like, man, I should fast. I think what he felt in his spirit was deeply grieved, broken, embarrassed, angry. And his response to this was to create space for him to feel the feelings that he felt. Be in that moment of betrayal and confusion. I was talking to one of our own, uh, Dr. Crystal Watt. She's a member here at um, Covenant. I use her title doctor because she actually does this. She counsels people through trauma and uh, uh, helps them find paths of healing. And so I just kind of called her and was like, hey, you know, give me the scientific side of these things, right? We got the script, you know, the sci- you know, how does food affect our ability to grieve or not to grieve? And she was just sharing some things with me, you know, like there's, you know, when, uh, when there's stimulus, we either have fight, flight, or freeze. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight it back, I'm going to f- run away from it, or I just sort of freeze, I don't know what to do, you know, like an animal caught in like headlights, deer in headlights. And in these moments, what we want to do is we want to numb ourselves, we want to distance ourselves from the painful emotions that we experience. And food provides a nice distraction. Sugar, alcohol uh, provide a nice detractor from the intense feelings in the moment that I'm in. I mean, Krista just shared with me, she said, you know, I see people use food constantly to numb their feelings. And so what does fasting do? Fasting creates space for you to feel your pain and to sit in your grief. Fasting provides space to feel your pain and to sit in your grief. Uh, Krista went on to share with me, like, hey, just like when we cut our finger, you know, we can, you know, put ointment on it, we can put a Band-Aid on it, but the reality is it just heals over time. Like, naturally, like, there's healing. And so for us to be in our emotions, and I'm not saying live in our emotions or stay stuck in our emotions, but to be in our moment, our emotions for a period of time, that that in and of itself can also be healing. And I think the ancients understood this. I think the ancient church understood this. But we are so quick to move on. How can I turn the page? How can I kind of get beyond this? What sort of little bumper sticker slogan can I kind of put on so that I can move beyond my emotions so I can kind of get on with my life? When there's these moments that God has created for us in this life that we might be able to experience him. So that's moment number one. Moment number two. A little bit further in Israel's history, we're in Nehemiah. So Israel has abandoned their God. All right? They've been unfaithful over a long period of time. And because of that, God's enemies, at this time it was, it was Babylon, came and overtook Israel, and then Israel was exiled, meaning they were taken from their home to a distant foreign country. Babylon got captured by Persia, and so now we're in the Persian Empire. And so Persia is the predominant nation. They are the, the superpower, and Israel is under their, under their power. And there's this guy, Nehemiah, who is a Jew. He's, a, he's one of God's peoples. And he actually serves in the royal throne room as an advisor to the king. And so he's sitting in this prominent place in the capital city of Persia while 
his ancestors are back at home in Judah and in the city of Jerusalem. And so here's where we're going to pick up the story. Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakalah, Hakaliah, uh, now it happened in the month of Shivzlev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the providence who have survived the exile is in tr- uh, great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire." As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. We'll pause right there. So Nehemiah isn't the one that's in direct threat. He's actually in quite a comfortable spot. He's in the king's palace with a really nice position, living a pretty comfortable life. But his kindred, his family, back home, are in a desperate situation. The fact that the walls are broken down meant that they were uh, exposed to any sort of hostile threat. Like, if your walls aren't built, your city's not built, your home is not built, and so they were exposed and they were potentially very liable to be taken advantage of. If we think this world is cruel, the ancient world was cruel. The ancient world was cruel. And so Nehemiah is distressed for his own kindred. And so he fasts for days before he prays. There's these times where it's not us, but it's ones that we love, ones that we know who are in distress, who are grieved, who are saddened by a state of affairs in their life. They are heartbroken. And they long for us to be in it with them. They long for us to empathize with them. They long for us to be by their side. And so it seems like Nehemiah creates, in fasting and prayer and mourning, this space to empathize with his kindred, that he might feel their pain before he even begins to pray to God. And we actually, if you continue to read the story, he immediately after this time of mourning and fasting and prayer then begins to, begins to pray. We mentioned this last week, but fasting always goes with prayer. Fasting is always meant to lead us into greater communion with God. Theologian Scott McKnight says this. He calls fasting body grief. Last week we said body turning. I really kind of stole it from Scott here. Uh, But he says body grief. So what's one reason why we fast? It's because we want to feel the grief in our bodies or our grief is in our bodies. So body grief is perhaps the purest example of what fasting is all about, he says. A human being, overwhelmed by the sacredness of a moment, chooses not to eat in order to sanctify his or her communion with God and to participate fully in one of life's most grievous moments. This word communion is prayer, talking to God. And so we are overwhelmed by our own sadness. We're overwhelmed by the sadness of somebody else. And in order this word sanctify, purify, to focus our prayers, to focus our communion with God, we abstain from food, that we might be in that sacred moment. We might not be distracted, that we might feel the feelings of what we are experiencing or what someone else is experiencing as well. And so it sanctifies, it focuses us on praying to him. All right, third incident. Incident, third incident. Just a little bit while later, still another Persian rule, although king of two later, God's people are in jeopardy again. Here's the setup. 
Queen Esther is a Jew, and she is the queen to the king of Persia. Now, he doesn't know that she's a Jew, but she comes to this place living in the royal throne, right, as the queen of the king. Her uncle Mordecai is uh, a government official. He, too, is a Jew, and he brings a bit of bad news to Esther that the king foolishly was deceived into signing into law an edict, a policy that would essentially mean that on a particular day that anybody could kill or harm Jews, all right? So we're talking about like ethnic cleansing in the scriptures, racial profiling in the scriptures. This was a chaotic moment. This is a moment beyond their own ability to control. This is something signed into law by the king himself. There's imminent danger for God's people. And Mordecai, Esther's uncle, goes to her to plead to her to do something. That's what we're going to read. So picking up here in chapter 4, verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father, father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to this kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. She says, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, or sorry, three days, night or day. I and my younger women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So Esther is not quite in direct threat of this uh, edict. However, she is because she's a Jew. But she's also in this place of prominence where she can potentially do something about it. And so now we have fasting, and it's sort of like her own grief and her people's grief, but then also like this need for wisdom on what to do, and not just wisdom, but power. I've now got to do something I can't do on my own, and I need God's help. And so for three days, night and day, all the Jews fasted that Esther might, as she obviously has an intent of what she's going to do, but needs God's help to do something she cannot do on her own. This is also another grievous situation. We have these things. Life is chaos. Life is chaos. And how does our world respond to chaos? Quick fixes, bandages, opinions, finding your camp that you're in. But that's not what we're taught to do. We're taught to enter into that moment because it is beyond our understanding. We are overwhelmed with emotion and complexity of what to do and how do we fit in. I mean, there's lots of these situations, but I think specifically of like George Floyd and, you know, this chaotic thing that was happening in our society, something that was much bigger than us, that was all over the place. And we were told, we were prodded to speak, to find a camp, to say something online or whatever, but, but, but not to pull back and to fast and seek the face of God. Before I respond, before I open my mouth, but before I declare a position, 
let me go and seek wisdom and power from the one who has it that I might know how to act and be. So I showed this uh, image last week, and actually every week I will. I'm going to change the wording of it a little bit. But I just want you to see how this works, okay? Because it's important. Fasting doesn't get us the result, okay? So when we have grief, when we have sadness, these sacred moments that we just like took a look at, we want comfort. We want justice. We, we want wholeness. We want to be healed. We want these things as a result. But that doesn't come through fasting, okay? Fasting doesn't provide that. What fasting does is fasting assists us to mourn, to be in the moment, to be present physically, spiritually, mentally with what is going on. It is actually God's faithfulness in Christ that delivers us real, eternal, salvific comfort, real healing from heaven. In fact, the man Jesus Christ himself is the one who came to comfort and to heal. I mean, God incarnate, God came down in human form. He suffered any and every form of suffering we can imagine in life, and he went to the cross to pay for the sins of the world and then rose again. And he did all of this, why? So that he might be in it with us. And really, that we might be in it with him and find the life of God in and with him. Isaiah 53, 2 says this about Jesus. He, he said, uh, sorry, Isaiah says, like a young plant or a rod, now this is a, a prophecy about Jesus, that sprouts in dry ground, the servant grew up obeying the Lord. He wasn't some handsome king. Nothing about the way he looked made him attractive to us. He was hated and rejected. His life was filled with sorrow and terrible suffering. No one wanted to look at him. We despised him and said, he is nobody. He suffered and endured great pain for us, but we thought his suffering was punishment from God. He was wounded and crushed because of our sins. By taking our punishment, he made us completely well. All of us were like sheep that had wandered off. We'd each gone our own way, but the Lord gave him the punishment we deserved. We abandoned God. We lived out our sin. We experienced the sins of the world in this chaos. And Jesus comes into it, experiences our suffering, and it says, by taking on our punishment, what he made us completely well. It is death and resurrection that makes us completely well. So fasting doesn't get us to comfort. It's Jesus' work on the cross that brings us from grief and sadness and brokenness to a place of wholeness and healing. But fasting allows us to enter into this sacred place of mourning, this posture of being able to listen to ourselves, to others, and to God, and to be present with ourselves, with others, and with God. So our big idea is this. Fasting allows us to connect with our emotions of grief, creating space for us to experience God's presence and then offer it to others. Fasting allows us to connect with our emotions of grief, creating space for us to experience God's presence and offer it to others. What we're sharing here this morning, I'm going to tell you one last story, is a mystery, okay? I really think it's a mystery. I have been myself fasting for the past year. And before this, I had dabbled with fasting here and there, but not really taking up as a lifestyle practice, but I have over the past year. And there's been some like really cool things that have like happened. Um, but one of them was this. 
I was in Albany, New York. I was at a conference, um, and if you've ever been to Albany, it, there's some rough places in Albany, New York. And I was living, or I was, I was at a hotel that was like right next, like one of these rough, kind of rougher areas of Albany. And this is one of my days of fasting. I was fasting on Tuesdays and Fridays. Um, it was one of my days of fasting, and uh, I don't know, I was gonna break my fast at 6.30 and like go and get like a nice meal at a local restaurant, and it was 4.30, and I'm like, I either sit here in my hotel room at 4.30 and just be hungry, or maybe I walk around and pray. So I chose that. Um, so I started walking around the streets, blocks, praying for the area, praying for people that I saw, and I came across a little kind of corner convenience mart with a guy standing out front. I'm like, this guy's gonna ask me for money. And lo and behold, I cross the street, he's like, hey, do you have some money? I said, no, I don't have any money that I wanna give you, but if you're hungry, I'll go into the convenience mart and buy you whatever you want. He said, give me two Snickers bars. So I said, I got you. And so I went into the convenience mart to get two Snickers bars. And so, you know, like you open up the little convenience mart, the thing jingle jangle, right? Like you come on in, I get my two Snickers bars, I come up to the counter, and the guy who's working the counter is off kind of leaning against the counter to the side, like on his phone. And just very casually, I was like, like, how's it going? And he was startled. Like, you know, have you ever done that? Like you've talked to someone, they're like so into their phone, they don't even know that you're there, right? He like was startled like that. And I was like, he was like, oh, like fine. I'm like, oh, I didn't mean to scare you. He's like, no, it's fine. And so he like comes over and he like starts ringing me out and tells me how much I owe, I give my credit card. And then he asked me, he says, how did you know? I was like, I don't know anything. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, like, wh like, what's going on? And he, there in front of me, just begins to weep in front of me, just crying, this grown man. He's like, how did you know? He's like, I thought for sure you knew. I'm like, what's going on? And he said, I was just texting his, he's from another country, and he's like, my mom is in another country, and she is dying. And I'm communicating with my relatives. He said, I thought you knew. I was like, no. And I put my hand on his shoulder, and, you know, just in this crazy moment, right, like, he is bawling. And I'm like, like, can I pray for you? I'm like, so sorry. He's like, yes. And so, like, we prayed together, and I just sat with them, him for a few moments, and, and then, like, I left, and then gave the guys two Snickers bars and went on my way. But... I bring the story up for this, okay? There's this evangelistic moment, so to speak, all right? I didn't really, like, tell him directly about Jesus, but I said, you know, God wants to comfort you. God is present. God knows. Like, let us move towards him together, right? And all I can say is this. Over the past year of fasting, there has been moments where I've stumbled upon people's suffering. And I'll tell you, in fact, someone told me last week, Nick, you're not a very empathetic person. I am not a very empathetic person. I'm a good listener, but I'm not an empathetic person. But fasting has allowed me to enter into other people's spaces of grief and sadness and even my own. And there's the power of God there that is beyond human understanding. There's the power of God that is beyond human understanding and our world craves it and so do we. Carrie Newhoff says this, a prominent Christian author and writer, he says this, he says, people are hungry for true community deeper experiences and authentic transcendence. This is why churches that are growing are focused more and more on creating experiences that engage more than just the head on Sunday morning. We are more than a head, we are more than a mind, and we're more than just learning. That's part of it, it's not all of it. But also engaging the heart in relationship, and this is what fasting does. It's not a command, we're not saying it's a command, we're saying it's an opportunity to engage your heart and relationship with others in these sacred moments. That's what it is. And so I really loved uh, last week because after we preached on fasting, I mean, a lot of people came up. I've gotten probably the most feedback I've ever gotten from a sermon I preached. 
um, before, uh, which was really encouraging that, man, I've, I've never really heard this before. Man, I, I want to start trying. Like, what do I do? And I'm like, well, I didn't really tell you what to do last week, and so I'm sorry for that. Um, I didn't even tell you to, like, go fast. Uh, some people were sharing with me about their experiences of fasting and how they experience the power of God in the midst of their fasting. Super cool feedback. So what I want to do right now is I want to offer you an opportunity to fast together. Uh, we have our ushers coming down. They're going to pass you a little card that looks just like this. Fasting in these moments of these scriptures, these stories, these are spontaneous, right? It'd be like, like there's a death in the family and I just choose not to eat for a day, right? It's just a natural response. Like we were meant to live that way. Like a friend is heartbroken and we choose to abstain from food that we might empathize with them. That's how we see it in scripture. But also there's these seasons and Lent is one of them that's coming up that the church has traditionally been like, hey, we're going to pause eating for a certain periods of time that we might better be able to engage the spiritual life and the gospel of Jesus Christ that we might know ourselves, others, and him, his goodness and provision through Jesus. And so we're going to invite you to fast together during the Lenten season. That's what this card is. And I've got all kinds of information on bgcovenant.org fasting. And so you can kind of check that out on your own if you want. Tons of resources, some videos, but mostly I just want to talk about like how is it that you can take up this opportunity. It's not a command, okay? I don't think in scripture you really can see that it's a command. It's an opportunity, okay? Fasting historically amongst Christians has been two days a week. So we're going to offer you to fast two days a week. I've been fasting two days a week. It's more doable than you might think. But if you're like, hey, that's maybe too much for me, then fast one day a week, all right? Or if you're like, hey, because of dietary things, or again, maybe fasting totally from food and no food for an entire days is like way too much, do a juice fast, all right? But we want to engage you and invite you to fast with us in community. We're going to do it communal, communally. Um, as I've talked to people about fasting, some people are like, hey, I thought people aren't supposed to know when we fast. No, that's not the point. People can know when you're fasting. It's that we don't brag about it. It's not any credit to you. It doesn't, you know, fast, don't fast, like, like whatever. It's an opportunity, right? And so that's what this is. Again, there's tons of resources online. How the fast will work, we're going to say sun up until dinner time, whenever that is. Fasting is without food, but you can drink water. And I kind of say coffee and tea. The reason is fasting is hard enough, especially those of us who are like not in discipline with it. Well, I don't want you to have a caffeine headache too. And so we'll take one thing on at a time. So that's kind of the way that works. I'll explain maybe a little more next week. You can find a ton of stuff on, online if you have questions. But if you want to sign up, you can fill this out here, drop it off at the black box or the info center, hand it to me if you want to, or you can sign up online. I'll be sending out weekly articles about more about fasting, weekly devotionals about where we can learn about in scripture, and again, how it is that you can engage in prayer through this practice of uh, fasting because they go together. And one last thing I want to say, uh, and I'll pray, and then uh, Kyle will come up and uh, 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 invite us into communion. Some of us, because we are so unhealthy with eating, you know, whether it's eating disorders or gluttony, that's a reality. As Westerners Americans, we have an unhealthy relationship with food. Maybe for you, fasting would just not be a healthy space for you emotionally or mentally. That is fine. There is no pressure. This is an all opportunity. But if you're like, because of my past or because of my relationship with food, I just cannot abstain from eating. It wouldn't be healthy for us or for me, join us still. Sign up, you know. I'll send you the articles. 
learning about fasting might actually help move you towards having a greater understanding of our relationship with food and the presence of God. And so join us, pray with us. And maybe for you, rather than fasting two days a week, you're setting aside time two days a week for extended time of being in the presence of God and speaking to him. Let me pray. God, I am, uh, as I read your scriptures and have been practicing myself, like I'm just fully convinced there is something here for your church. Um, God, help us to believe. We have been taught that food is a pathway to happiness and wholeness and celebration, and that's part of it. But also, God, we just can believe the lie that, uh, that we live on food alone when we live on you alone. And so, God, as we prayerfully consider how it is that we might fast together as a community, would you lead us, would you empower us? And God, for those of us who engage in this practice over the Lenten season, God, would you bless us as we learn again this ancient practice? Amen.